the Egyptians had shifted dramatically towards the people of Israel. Uh, there had been that great acceptance of them during the time when Joseph had come to them and interpreted the Pharaoh's dream and worked as a, a sort of uh, vice Pharaoh. He was number two in charge of the country uh, because interpretation of the dream had led him to understand uh, as God had explained to him there was going to be seven years of abundance like they'd never seen before and then seven years of famine uh, such as the world had never even experienced. He led them through the process of storing up 20% of their grain and according to the scripture the world was saved from the death of that famine. Um, the people of Egypt greatly honored him and his family allowed his father, brothers, and their extended family to move into the country, into the land of Goshen. There, they multiplied exceedingly. We pointed out that a little later, when they leave out of Egypt, there are 600,000 men of fighting age. So between the age of 20 and 50 years old, uh, armed and ready for battle. So they've expanded dramatically. New Pharaoh... Uh, death of the old Pharaoh causes the new Pharaoh to distrust Israel and they enslave them. They make them their servants and their slaves. And the populace continues to grow until the paranoia of the Pharaoh causes him to say, we need to start limiting the population. They need to put to death all of their newborn males so that we continue to have a subservient group of people, the females, but no males that would have the mindset of being warriors and conquerors. Israel disobeys that, the nurses or midwives who are caring for the birth of the children, and the populace continues to grow, and the midwives are blessed by God for not obeying the murderous intentions of Pharaoh. You come to Exodus chapter 2, and it says in verse 1, and a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. The parallel passage in Numbers chapter 26, verse 59, tells us the name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. Amram, she bore Aaron, Moses, and his sister Miriam. So Amram and Jochebed are the parents of Moses that we're talking about. In verse 2 of Exodus chapter 2, it says, So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. He was a beautiful child. What does that mean? There are any number of explanations. Physical attractiveness uh, being one of the possibilities. Uh, there's more to the idea that there was a brightness and an alertness to his countenance at birth that caused them to think there was some godly attribute about him, that there was something special about the child. Acts chapter 7, verse 20 Stephen is about to be stoned to death, and he's giving that brilliant history 
of Israel. He says, at this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. The idea of well-pleasing to God. There was something about this newborn child. You think about when uh, Mary comes to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, and Mary's pregnant with Jesus, and the Holy Spirit causes John to leap in the womb of his mother. There are spiritual things beyond our ability to understand. You know, so much of what the world has done is just diminish the idea of the supernatural, be it good or bad, so that the culture, you know, societies of the world and we as individuals aren't even looking for what could be, you know, telltale signs of the spiritual. Uh, I had uh, four people with me uh, this past week giving them a tour of Acadia National Park. And um, uh, in the midst of it, uh, they have said nothing about the Lord. I've said nothing about the Lord. But I have come to the place just through the pleasant demeanor that I know all four of the people in the car are born-again Christians. And um, I look for the opportune moment to say, well, really, this is just my second job. And they say, oh, really, what is your first job? And I say, oh, I'm a local pastor. And the car erupted with hysteria. They were so excited. You know, I had to literally at one point say, guys, you're paying me to talk to you about the history of the National Park. You know, say they just want to talk about the Lord now. There's a countenance about the body of Christ. There's something you've experienced it where someone says to you, are you a believer? Or you say to them, are you a believer? I've never said that to anyone and had them be like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. And every time it's come to, I mean, as some have suspected and, you know, haven't quite known and left it alone. Others, it's compelled me to say something. And when I said something, sure enough, yeah, I'm a believer. And, you know, you, you found your long lost brother or sister and you spend whatever time you can talking to them. Some of them are a little strange, but it's fun anyway. So uh, this idea, you know, he's a beautiful child in the Lord is more or less what's being implied. And then in verse 3, and when she could no longer hide him, right? I mean, how do you keep an infant totally silent, moms, for three months? You know what I'm saying? That's going to require a lot of attention, right? I mean, you're going to have to be way ahead of the ball game in order to keep that child from even squawking at all. Okay, this child has a death threat hanging over its head. This is not a mild thing. This is, this is a thing where, you know, they're constantly being attentive to the care and well-being of Moses. And they've kept him these three months. She could no longer hide him. She took an ark of bulrushes. I love the fact that it's an ark. You know, the flood... And the preservation of the human race in Noah's ark and now Moses himself. You know, all of those Sunday school teachers that try to trick their kids. And when did Moses enter the ark? Well, when his mom put him in the bulrushes. You know, it's not Noah, it's Moses. Moses was in an ark also. 
There's a different occasion. There's a different salvation that occurs through this ark. She took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch. The construction sounds very similar. Put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. Now, I, I every time I've read this, I've wondered if she didn't somehow have something in her mind along the lines of, well, we were told we had to put them in the river. I've, I've been obedient and I've put him in the river. I've just done it in a way that's a little more secure than going through the process of harming or murdering my child. I haven't disobeyed. I've done what the Pharaoh asked. It's still a very treacherous prospect, obviously. Putting a child into a waterproof basket in the Nile River, it's, it's, it has a current. It can easily pull the child downstream. Any number. This location is filled with crocodiles. This, this is not a mild undertaking this woman is going through. There's a tremendous amount of trust involved in this. I'm not over-exaggerating it. I mean, you know, when, when they reach a point of adulthood and we're having to make the decision of, okay, now I'm going to let go of them. They're going to head off to school. They're going to go get their own apartment. They're going to go and get married. That relinquishing of the controls. <clears throat> There's a lot of fear and trepidation involved. Amen, parents? When you get to those points and you have to make those decisions. And that's for us when they've got a fair amount of their faculties to take care of themselves. I did say fair amount. I didn't go too far with that. A fair amount of their faculties to take care of themselves. This is a helpless child that she's putting into the place that's so vulnerable. There's a lot to learn spiritually from that. Trusting the Lord with the outcome. Doing your best as, you know, the scripture talks about children being like arrows in the quiver. You know, if, if that be the case, uh, you want to learn to be as skillful an archer as you can possibly be. You want them to hit the target, right? I hope we all know and understand that the term sin comes from archery. That's something that had developed by the 1600s so that when the King James scholars were taking those terms out of the Greek and the Hebrew and translating them into the English language, the term sin had to do directly with archery, and it meant missing the bullseye, missing the mark, just being off slightly. You know, if you missed the target altogether, they would say uh, you had sinned dramatically. If you just missed the bullseye, they would say, oh, you sinned just a little. It was missing the bullseye. That is the same idea for us. We've missed the mark. The mark is perfection. The perfect standard that only Jesus Christ was capable of accomplishing. We as parents and that idea of 
children being arrows in our quiver takes a great deal of attention to launch them out of our care into the world and have them continue to hit them. They're going to sin, right? But we pray they don't sin big. Remember what I've said to you very often. What we do in moderation, our children will do in excess. Our behavior dramatically affects them. Consider your relationship with the Lord. Be encouraged in that and draw close to the Lord. She puts him in the reeds by the riverbank. I think that there's a protective process in that. She didn't just put him in the river, let the current take over. She put him amongst the reeds where he's in the river, but he's protected from some of the influences that would carry him to places that he shouldn't be. His sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. We don't have an indication there if that was at the command of her mother or if it was from her own concern. At this point, Jochebed is doing what she knows she has to do while she's entrusting her child to the care of the Lord. This has to be done. For someone less mature, watching someone take dramatic steps of faith, they might not have the level of trust that a more mature mother would. So she stays by to look on. We might look at Miriam and think, okay, like I just suggested, that's a level of distrust. Maybe that was a level of faith for her because it unfolds that she becomes integrated into what's about to transpire. She stays and she lingers and she watches. So each one of them has their own role. His sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river. Probably Miriam panicked at that point. Great concern. This is the direct family of the man who's given the order that all of these children should be put to death. This is a big fear for, I suspect, in this moment. And her maidens walked along the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it, just out of wonderment. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. There's a lot contained in that statement. She knows the order that's been given. She all knows all that is going on in their circumstances. And, and she probably has a complete understanding of this child has been hidden here in the river. There's quite a thought when you consider her place in this culture. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Smart young girl. Very clever. Very clever at this point. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. 
And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. How remarkable it is that the Lord orchestrated these circumstances this way. That they could look at what's going on and make incremental decisions trusting the Lord without knowing the outcome, right? When we can look all the way down the path and say, I'm going to make this decision here because the projected outcome looks like that and we can proceed toward the goal, that's one thing. When we're in the moment and we're just being hard-pressed on every decision that we're making and we're taking the steps of faith and then this becomes the outcome, that builds faith in an entirely different way. It's a small thing. I mentioned the clients that I was with this past Friday as I brought them back down into Bar Harbor and I'm explaining a few things about the downtown as we drive through. I turn to my left, my window's fully down and I'm explaining where they might go eat or go shopping and I turn to my left and our pastor friend Dave Homechunk is literally face to face with me. You know, he lives 100 miles away, ministers in Dover and I just turn around and literally say, "Hey Dave, you know, we're just face as I drive by." He's like, "Hey, you know, we I can't be too distracted, so I just go back to my clients and talk and they laugh about how odd that moment was and you know, Dave texts me later and we talk. I finish the afternoon and make a few errands and finish up some work and say to my wife, look, we don't get much time together. And uh, now that we've completed, is there anything else you need to do? And, uh, you know, she begins this hesitant thing about explaining. I say, no, 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 sky's the limit. Like, what, what would you want me to help you take care of right now? I really need to go to Bangor, she said. We're in Ellsworth. I say, okay, you know what, let's just do it. So I'll call the family, say we're not going to be home until later. And just rather than turning left, I turn right and we head out of town. And we drive all the way in town and all kinds of different bits and pieces of conversation along the way. You know, I come down to, where would you like to go out to eat? And uh, she makes the decision. And uh, so I know what exit we're going to get off. And we're going to, we have to go to the party store. Everybody knows what that's all about. So I just, you know, I put the blinker on and I, I'm, I'm going to take the exit in this I notice this vehicle pulls up like this and fades back and then pulls up and I look over and Dave Homechuck is in the vehicle next to me. And I wave and we both laugh. It's the second time in a day. You know what I'm saying? And uh, he pulls in front of me, puts his blinker on, he's going off the same exit. And now I get the text message, hand it to my wife, she reads, and oh, they're going out to eat the same place we were going. So we pull in the parking lot and you know, can we join you guys? We are sitting down and remember the Neelys, the musicians that came here, the band Neely, Jeremy and his wife. So they're with them. We go in, we sit out, and it's just like an hour plus of fellowship with, you know, brothers and sisters. And 
we end up uh, discussing a number of things about the legalization of marijuana that they neither one had information about. So I'm just sending them articles and information and talking about uh, different things they needed to know for the ministries that they're involved in. Uh, they both are heavily involved in particularly jail ministries, which that subject comes up a lot. And we all walked away knowing the divine orchestration of the Lord. You know, that term providence literally means God's hand of influence. He's the one. It isn't, you know, we say providence today, it's lost its definition. The idea of like happenstance. It was just an accidental coincidence. It's not what it means at all. Its true definition is that God ordained the circumstances. That's the life we want. Whether it be casual things such as that or something as dramatic of what am I going to do with letting go of my child in this moment? The care. Now listen. There's another thing that occurs, and I'm going to take the opportunity right here to point it out. As divinely used as Miriam is, we may be as divinely used. We want to be careful about not letting that go to our head. Okay, If I pick up a pen and write a letter, odd as it is to describe it this way, that pen has no opportunity to be proud of itself and the work that it's done. It's been in my hand, and it's performed what I asked it to do. If God picks you up and use you in a divinely orchestrated way, like Miriam was used right here, there's no opportunity for pride. And yet, we turn a few pages and we find Miriam trying to actually usurp authority over Moses. Miriam's trying to take charge spiritually, actually trying to set herself up as a priestess within the nation of Israel. God strikes her with leprosy. Now, understand how gracious that is in the moment because God doesn't just kill her and she's healed from the leprosy and the entire nation of Israel is forced to stay in that place until Miriam has been healed and restored into their company before they can move on. God doesn't think less of Miriam. Very powerful person, very powerful role in our lives, right? We're able to read this message right here because of the work and the actions and the faith of this young woman. But there's also a subtle danger in it where we get full of ourselves. To whatever degree the power of the Lord is working in our lives and in our midst, in the end, all we can say is to God be the glory. Great things He has done. It's not my capability. It's not your capability. It's the Lord working in our midst. Jochebed is now being paid to take care of her child. The Pharaoh is now paying her. What a remarkable thing. What a painful thing it must be to be surrounded by women who are going through the horrific pain of what this culture is being forced into 
and she's been granted back her child and being paid by God through Pharaoh to take care of Moses. Difficult, wonderful thing. Pharaoh's daughter here called the maiden's mother. Take him and nurse him. I'll give you wages. So she nursed him. The child grew in verse 10. She brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, literally adopted into the family. This statement here is really powerful, and history tells us that Moses actually rose through the ranks within Egypt to the point where he was in line for the throne. Great military training, great military leader, incredible prowess on everything that he was involved in, and he is in line for the throne. So she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. I underlined drew. It's significant. Some say this was an Egyptian name, uh, similar to names used by pharaohs, meaning son or is born. That's possible. There's more evidence that it's actually a pun on a Hebrew verb, which means to draw out. I drew him out. The scripture actually records, because I drew him out of the water. In our language, it might be something like naming him Andrew, because I drew him out. It has that sort of connotation in it. Whatever it is, she's got the idea it's because she drew him out of the water. I'll point out again, Pharaoh intended to drown Moses. He wanted all of the children drowned, thrown into the Nile River. Moses, as you know, is raised up to power amongst the Hebrew people and leads them out of the captivity. You turn a few pages and get to Exodus chapter 14, verse 27. And it says, And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Pharaoh wants to drown Moses and the children of Israel. And when we read the scripture telling us, don't take vengeance, vengeance is mine. Thus saith the Lord, I will repay. You want to drown my children? I'll drown your entire army. You see the injustices that are going on in the world? No, no for certain. God is still in control and he will balance the scales someday. He is the God of justice. Continuing in Exodus chapter 2, looking at verse 11, it says, Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Now this idea of looked is, is not just the idea of he saw it or he glanced upon it or he took notice of it. It's the idea of studying it intently. He took the time to stop and really examine the bur burden, the weight, the pressure that his people were under. I mean, 
it's all around him all the time. He's seeing it all the time. But what this moment is describing is the idea of pushing everything else out of your mind, your existence, your state, and really identifying with what's going on in someone else's life. Really getting in-depth into it. You know, I can remember last summer when we took uh, the group of kids and we went down uh, to Philadelphia and uh, we brought back and did a slideshow for many of you and you, you got to see what these young people experienced. You know, uh, you know, as we leave out of the rock uh, ministry and we're going to go take a tour through this downtown district, the guy who's leading us says to my wife, are those flip-flops the only thing that you have to wear? And she says, yes. He stops everybody in our group and says, all right, everybody pay attention with me because there are needles, hypodermic needles from heroin use from all these junkies you see around here, about every five feet. He said, I want you to walk heel down, toes up when we go. And sure enough, I took photographs. There are just discarded used heroin needles everywhere, everywhere in, in this area. You know, knowing that's in your culture is one thing. Going and serving these people meals that afternoon, watching them stagger in the door, sitting down and talking with a man who never used heroin before in his life, three months ago, moved to that area, lost his job out of desperation, got high on heroin for the first time, went from 198 pounds, he's sitting in front of me weighing 98 pounds. Three months, gaunt, sunken cheeks, near death. Telling me his teeth are loose from drug addiction and his body just wasting away. Seeing the burden in passing is very different than getting right at gut level with it. Knowing what it's about. Touching it. That's the idea of what Moses is doing here. He's seen it all his life. He takes the time to study it intently. It says during this beating that's described in verse 12, so he looked this way and that way. When he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The idea is he actually waited for the Egyptian to be alone. He didn't jump into the circumstance, right? He did this in total secret. He looked this way, that way, saw no one. So that includes whoever he was beating previously. He does this in secret, and he hides the body in secret to try and cover up his sin. When he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. He said to the one who did the wrong, I underlined that, to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Oh, hey, things weren't as secret as Moses supposed, right? It isn't just that they've found a dead Egyptian. This simple Israeli 
laborer has the full knowledge that you, Moses, killed an Egyptian. That, that's got to mean that a whole lot more people know that also. If this, you know, sort of generic individual has the information, surely many others do. This scares Moses to death. We'll see how it unfolds. But take note in verse 14, two things. Who made you, number one, a prince? Number two, a judge over us. Who made you our ruler? Who made you the one who makes decisions about us? You got no rights here, pal. We're a separate nation, and you are not in charge. How is it that you think you're actually here to say something about my conduct? What this man and all of Israel and all of Egypt do not understand is Moses is actually the prince and the judge. He is the one who has been ordained, anointed, and sent by God for this purpose. Moses is actually completely dialed in to God's plan. No one else on the planet is yet. He, he's got it completely correct as far as his position and his role. What he does not have correct is his conduct. He currently is not following the will of the Lord properly. Put your bookmark there for a moment if you can and turn hard to the right with me to the book of John chapter 19. John chapter 19, we're going to read a few verses here regarding Jesus and the trial that he was under just before they crucified him. John chapter 19, beginning at verse 14, says, Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, that's Pilate speaking, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. It's actually the same response. You see, Jesus is the king, and he is the judge, and the world was rejecting him. That is the behavior of sinful people. Even our own heart rejects the authority of Christ. When we're pursuant of our own selfishness and our own sin, what we are in effect saying is, I will not have this man to rule over me. I will rule myself. Will Cass will make the decisions. I, I will sit upon my own throne in my own heart, and I will determine right and wrong. We can look at them and be very critical of them, but it's the same struggle every human being has. Are we going to properly identify the ones that Christ has anointed as bearing authority over us, and are we going to submit to them? It's a tragic thing when we don't. 
Continuing back in Exodus chapter 2 at verse 14, it says, So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. This is exactly what Moses knew from having been in those courts and having understood how the authority works. He knows the trouble that he's in. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water. And they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. It is thought with a fair degree of accuracy that these are the descendants of Abraham's second wife, Keturah, from her son Midian. Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 and 2, tell us Abraham again took a wife. Her name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. So Midian seemingly is the land of Midian and the people of Midian, and also the idea that here Jethro, the uh, you know priest of Midian, is actually worshiping the one true living God because he's actually a descendant of Abraham. So here he's actually entering into a community that is his family by blood and his family spiritually. So important detail, verse 17 then the shepherds came and drove them away, the daughters of this family. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered his flock. You see, his character is to behave this way. His natural character is to be a defender, to be a leader, to stand up for those who need this type of protection and leadership, help them water their flock. He's also a servant. As much as he is in authority, as much as he is a defender, he's also one who would go as far as to water their flock. Verse 18, when they came to Ruel, their father, if that creates any confusion for you, okay, Ruel, Jethro, same person. You're going to hear those names used interchangeably of this man, Ruel and Jethro. It's the same person. Well, their father said, how is it that you have come so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. He also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. And there it is. Moses did the work. So he said to his daughters, and where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. This is a stereotypical to this day a Middle Eastern Bedouin courtesy. They are constantly on the alert for caring for those who could be their guests. They take a great deal of pride in making sure they owe no man, that they would care for them and uh, see that their needs are met. Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man. As something to be said there. If you've come from an environment of unspeakable wealth 
just incredible care and pampering to the place where you're daily dishing out the water for sheep in humble circumstances, the fact that it says Moses was content to live with them tells you a great deal about the humility of his heart. A great deal. You know, I, I've had a couple of occasions uh, to take young people into my humble home, and uh, when they've come from incredibly affluent homes and lifestyles, it's a shock and a stark reality to land in my house, you know, where there are chores and work to be done every day. When they've, you know, come from a place where there were no responsibilities asked of them, you know, some of them, you know, quickly adjust and enjoyed what they were experiencing. Others were just sort of gnawing their own leg off to get out of the trap. You know, was not their mindset, was not their upbringing, was not. What they, the fact that it says right here, Moses was content to live with them, speaks profoundly of his character. Live with a man. And he, right? gave Ruel, gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses, and she bore him a son, a marriage, a family is formed. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. As much as Moses finds contentment, you also hear that there is a real struggle for him. He's a stranger here. You know, Some of us know what that's like. You, know, you just go to another state and you don't use the right phrases. You don't say the right things. You don't do the right things. You don't eat the right things. You know, some have come here and experienced that. You know, they've had to learn what fluff is. I mean, hey, you don't know how to make a fluff and utter. Where are you from? You just you don't sell this stuff on the. You know, they're amazed that it even exists. Some of you right now are sitting there going, "What is?" Literally, my son-in-law came from California and had never experienced fluff. You know, how, how do you ever have, I mean, at some point you've got to have hot chocolate with fluff on top of it. Am I right? It's just peanut butter. You've never had peanut butter and fluff? No, never heard of it. So you've never heard of raspberry fluff? No, wait, what? Wow. You know, had to put them through therapy. It's just difficult. He's a stranger. He doesn't fit in. I mean, think about it. The lady said when they returned from the well, he was an Egyptian. And there, there is a, such a dramatic difference in his appearance, his demeanor, his culture, his talk, that they don't even think of him as having any relation to them. There's an Egyptian at the well. That's probably the biggest reason they left him at the well. He don't bring Egyptians home. They're weird. They got that weird eye makeup thing. They, you know, I didn't even. The stranger in a foreign land. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. The children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham. 
with Isaac and Jacob. It isn't as though he forgot. It's the idea of it was continually before God's mind, and now he's going to put it into action. So he remembered the covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob, and God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Listen, a couple of things here. To begin with, Moses has made his identity with God's people. He had all kinds of other opportunities. In a worldly perspective, what a foolish decision to look with a studying intensity upon the suffering of the Hebrews and then align himself with them. From a worldly perspective, that is the dumbest thing he could have done. Obviously, from a biblical, godly perspective, it's the wisest thing he could ever do. There is a temptation for every one of us to align ourselves with the opulence of the world. We need to reject that. We need to look with an intensity in the scriptures at the people of God and we need to identify ourselves with them. We need to depart from the things of the world. Think of what the book of James says to us about how adulterers and adulteresses do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. We need to make that willful choice to reject worldliness and pursue godliness. I assume all of us know the end of this story, the great fulfillment of God's plan. That's the sort of heroic endeavor every one of us has a longing for in our hearts. That only comes through great suffering, you guys. Moses doesn't see this accomplished in his life through ease. That's the life he was in. It's, it's in the process of rejection and hardship that Moses sees the work of the Lord done in his life. Let the Lord carry you into those places. Now, keep in mind, as I've said, that idea of Miriam. We don't want to get somewhere in the path and have our pride begin to grow. Right? God carries this out. God isn't looking around. As much as I talked about Moses' beauty, God isn't looking around and going, oh, at last, Moses, he's so awesome. Now we can get some work done. Right here, we're told why God begins this workful process. Because he remembered the covenant that he had made. We're under the covenant Jesus Christ has made. The accomplishment and the work that Jesus Christ is bringing about in you and I is just that. The accomplishment and the work that Jesus Christ is bringing about. We need to make that decision. We need to identify with God's people. But in the end, it's the Lord who does the work in us and through us, right? That Philippians 1.6. As Paul says, I'm confident of this. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it even unto the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Submit yourself to the work of the Lord 
and let him complete it. Amen? Amen. Well, let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, your plan is so far beyond us, so magnificent, so fulfilling, so complete. If any of us in this room have not surrendered our lives to you, Lord, I pray right now we would. That we would simply pray to you, ask you to forgive us of our sins. That you would cause us to be born again. That you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and make us a child of God. As much as Pharaoh's daughter chose Moses and caused him to become her son. We see your scripture saying that you have chosen us and given us the right to become the sons and daughters of God. Lord, may each of us be surrendered to that. As we are, Lord, then use us. Orchestrate and steer us into those circumstances as much as you orchestrated this family putting their child in the river and then orchestrated Pharaoh's daughter coming to the river to bathe and then orchestrated Miriam seeing and guiding and then orchestrated that Moses' mother would be paid to care orchestrate our lives. Accomplish our day-to-day -day steps. Perform your work and your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.